Welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. The mission of my blog and this podcast is to share my passion for live theater, review a production without plot spoilers, and hopefully inspire you to check out a new play, musical, or theater company. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am also now a critic for the website Broadway World under my name, Joe Lombardi, but my blog and this podcast discusses every show I attend. This year alone, I have surpassed 160 reviews through the month of October. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. In this particular episode, I will also cover two shows I saw in Minneapolis during a long weekend visit to see Corey and Emily get married. This podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Today, I'm going to share my theater visits and observations, which I attended during the month of October 2019. From Broadway, I'm going to talk about Freestyle Love Supreme, Slave Play, and Linda Vista. From Minneapolis, I attended Ride the Cyclone at the Jungle Theater and a production of Snow White at the Children's Theater. And as always, there will be a slew of off and off-off Broadway shows, notably the Public Theater's revival of the 1976 groundbreaking Broadway hit for color girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. This particular play was only the second play written by an African-American woman, which was produced on Broadway at that time. As always, there's a few happy surprises I'm really glad to tell you about, and I even covered one dance performance this month. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Direct links to this podcast are located on the About This Reviewer page, so you can easily find links to your favorite provider. In addition, you can register online to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's take our seats so I can tell you about the shows I've covered this month. First up, Freestyle Love Supreme. In 2002, Freestyle Love Supreme was created by the Tony-winning team which would eventually soar into the theatrical stratosphere with Hamilton. That was 2015. Composer Lin-Manuel Miranda was also awarded a Pulitzer Prize for that effort. Thomas Kale has directed four Broadway shows and the recent and superb Fosse Verdon on television. These two co-created this show with Anthony Veneziale. What were these future geniuses up to after their fortuitous meeting at Wesleyan University? Freestyle Love Supreme was presented by the then much smaller arts incubator Ars Nova back in 2005. With the gazillions being raked in every week by Hamilton and a film of Mr. Miranda's first Broadway musical, In the Heights on the Way, this show was revived off-Broadway earlier this year. A successful run prompted an uptown transfer to the relatively intimate Booth Theater. This incarnation is my first encounter with the piece. When I left the theater, I felt that I had been awash in a sea of positive juju. 
there is a notable sense of community between the audience and the performers. Without question, there is some good-natured ribbing as well. One of the skits was titled, Life as a White Guy on the Upper East Side. There is also a We Did It spirit, as this little engine that finally could emerges into the grand spotlight. The show is described as a freestyle, hip-hop, improvisational, never-before-seen comedy ride. When it begins, the players are introduced with labels, such as Microphone 1 and 2. They ask the audience for verb ideas. In the performance I attended, run, gesticulate, impeach, and vomit joined a litany of audience inputs. From that, a hip-hop musical number is made up on the spot. Kayla Milady, a.k.a. Kaiser Rosé, is the 2015 and 2018 World Beatbox Champion. She is phenomenal throughout and impressively delivers the vocally impossible. Our main storytellers are Utkarsh Ambutkar, a.k.a. UTK, The Inc., Andrew Bancroft, a.k.a. Jelly Donut, and Anissa Folds, a.k.a. Young Knees. All of them are talented, funny, and surprisingly adept at conveying delightfully warm and heartfelt reminiscences. Mr. Bancroft, or should I say Mr. Donut, well, he's the MC of this freewheeling and obviously structured enterprise, and his level of infectiousness is very high. When we move on to Things You Hate, the expected shout-outs for Trump and Mitch McConnell are, of course, hurled at the stage. They were followed by the New England Patriots and guns. Things started to get interesting when flip-flops and humidity were added into the mix. Those provided some of the best material and belly laughs of the evening. The spoken performers were joined on stage by musician Arthur Lewis, a.k.a. Arthur the Geniuses, and guest artist on keys Ian Weinberger, a.k.a. Burger Time. They added to the merriment, riffed with the cast, and noticeably celebrated humorous high points. Guests are and will be a regular part of the show. I attended a Monday night performance at 10 p.m. Lin-Manuel Miranda joined Freestyle Love Supreme at the earlier 7 o'clock show. Lest we feel cheated, Mr. Donut killed in his impersonation and the audience convulsed with laughter. Our guest that evening was introduced as a relative newbie to the troupe. Ashley Perez Flanagan, a.k.a. Reina Fire, was the centerpiece of the finest segment. The Muppets were chosen as the main topic for the Things We Love portion of the show. The riffing on those puppets were indeed funny, but also veered into the intimately nostalgic. Tales of Childhood, a show which could appeal to adults as well. Perhaps that is the essence of Freestyle Love Supreme. A clever wink at our amusing differences and quirks laced with a knowing lampoon of our crazy world. Add in a major dash of quick intellect and a refreshing nod of sentimentality and sweetness. I enjoyed Freestyle Love Supreme from start to finish. Ticket prices, however, range from $59 to $199. I'm not convinced the upper end of that scale is a reasonable value proposition. The show is only 80 minutes long. If you can snag a reasonably priced seat, however, 
there is a lot of smiling and good vibes to be had. Let's transition from hip-hop to jazz in the play Aloft Modulation. If you want to know what's wrong with this country, go ask a jazz musician. James Jorsling's new play, A Loft Modulation, is a lot like jazz. Some sections are scintillating, magical, and transporting, while others are elongated and incongruous. Patience, however, will reward those who travel this path. A fascinating time capsule view into a vivid and complicated world of artists, dreams, demons, and drugs awaits. In 1955, W. Eugene Smith, a celebrated photographer, quit his job when Life magazine was practically the internet. He left his family and moved into a dilapidated loft in Manhattan's extremely seedy flower district. Smith was in search of himself, his vision, and his art. Hull Overton, a Juilliard teacher, was his neighbor. Their adjoining lofts were the late-night haunts of famous musicians, think Sonny Rollins, Thelonious Monk, painters such as Salvador Dali, and other colorful characters. Between 1957 and 1965, Smith took 40,000 pictures of life in the loft. He also wired the entire building as a recording studio and made 4,500 hours of audio tape. Music? conversations, and cats having sex. A writer named Sam Stevenson researched all of this material for 13 years. He wrote an extraordinarily well-received book called The Jazz Loft Project in 2009. James Joysling's play is inspired by this extensively documented slice of artistic New York life near the end of the heyday of jazz. The character of Myth Williams is the Smith person from history. His need for art is intense and raw. The driving force? I want to matter. His loft has no doors and is filled with cameras, pictures, booze, and drugs. Upstairs, the Juilliard pianist Way Tonover is composing and jamming late into the night. Reggie Sweets is the brilliant drummer who everyone cannot praise enough. One of the richest veins found in this play is Reggie's mind. When things are good, quote, it's all a percussive orchestra. When he sees the Picassos, however, the pain hurts and his music suffers. Myth asks, who are the Picassos? They are the eyes of people not giving me 100%, in backs of heads, from sides of their necks, judging eyes, sprouting from everywhere, like fungus. Reggie turns to drink and drugs, as do many who frequent this loft. Skylar is the prostitute who myth befriends. Chip is a junkie. This world is alive with creativity, angst, self-medication, joy, and hardship. The Cuban Missile Crisis and the assassination of JFK weave into this messy fabric. In between scenes, improvisational jazz is played. Directed by Christopher McElrion, the mood setting of the period feels right. Aloft modulation also takes place in 2019. Like the original researcher, 
the character of Steve Samuels discovers this treasure trove of images and piles of unlabeled audio tapes. His intensive perusal through these artifacts becomes our journey. Time shifts back and forth. There is a moment late in the play when Steve listens in on the early days. After all of the drama already endured, it was jolting to see the inhabitants returned to vibrancy and possibility. The last line was quietly heartbreaking and utterly perfect. The play does need some editing. The scenes which are least effective are between Steve and his wife. She's in real estate and introduced Steve to this forgotten museum. His passion and drive to be consumed by something resonates strongly. As someone driven by a passion for theater and writing, after decades within the business world, I related to his desire to be immersed and energized by something nonlinear and personally mesmerizing. The simplistic bickering between the two, however, added little to the significant depths and themes of the overall story. As piano player Tonover, Eric T. Miller may have been beamed in from the era. His physicality and presence were astonishingly real. Why can some artists frequent this loft and yet not be consumed by their darkest impulses? Mr. Miller's performance as someone straddling the creative and pragmatic nicely hinted at a possible answer to that question. P.J. Sosko plays Myth Williams and is completely believable in the role. I love that I did not like him, even though I do admire tenacity. As portrayed by the excellent Alicia Lawson, Reggie was the most contrasted individual with the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Even the grifter Chip, nicely embodied by Spencer Hamp, devolved as time progressed. Humor is often employed by these individuals. They seem to enjoy each other, their collective dreams, and quests for excitement, despite the obvious potential for destruction and chaos. Horn player Charlie Hudson III, played by a terrific Sleepy Lou Butler, well, he may be the character who most helps us see the fun in this loft. The female roles were tougher to swallow. Christina Toth Schuyler did not seem like a drug-addled prostitute from the period, but she was effective in her relationship chemistry. All of the action occurs on a memorable, multi-level set designed by Troy Hoori. The building is presented as a cross-section with every room wide open for observation and study. A large-scale diorama with sound and movement ingeniously captures then and now. The lighting design was by Becky Heisler McCarthy. This story is for those people interested in a New York history, the creative mind, a willingness to pursue life unfettered by societal norms, and the fragility of the human spirit. A film of this would not surprise me at all. As a play... Aloft modulation is a bit slow and measured. The vast amount of thought which came to me afterward nevertheless makes this production worthwhile. Here's an opportunity to listen to ghosts and consider the meaning of life and art. That does not happen every day. Now we'll head downtown to the double bill of plays, the Fez and the Sandalwood Box. The last two entries into the Flea Theater's Festival of Mac Wellman plays are the never-before-staged The Fez and a revival of The Sandalwood Box. 
Both are short works included in the five plays produced with the theme Perfect Catastrophes. The Fez was originally commissioned as a t-shirt play in 1998. As written, the play is simply a descriptive paragraph. Mr. Wellman's words are often highly specific and overflowing with poetry, incisiveness, and gibberish, sometimes in equal measure. This one is descriptive and, yes, short enough to be printed on a shirt. Any of the, quote, better class of contemporary classic American or British play begins this piece. Mr. Wellman suggests the chosen work should be properly inflated with moral updraft of a clear and paraphrasable kind. The classic chosen in this production is universally recognizable. Rora Broadwin is a delightful exaggeration of Eliza Doolittle. As the retelling unfolds, something strange happens. The fez takes its place as a ceremonial object center stage. Mystifying and silly dances seem to represent rituals of worship. Those sections have names like fur-lined hangover. In the process, the staid theater of the past is shaken up, allowed to swim in its own kookiness, and simply be the fez. Downtown Mayhem and the Safari Song Wipeout. Whether or not you will be engaged will depend on your ability to be a ball of yarn to a mischievous cat. This is, after all, a perfect catastrophe. After this bouncing lunacy of theatrical excess, the mood changes but is still futuristic. The sandalwood box takes place in the rainforests of south of Brooklyn. Dorothea Gloria is Marcia Gates, a student at City College. In a voiceover, she tells us that she lost her voice in 1993 as a result of an act of the unseen. This one's going to be mysterious, you quickly conclude. Indeed, as she warns, if you think you cannot be so stricken, dream on. At a bus stop, Martha meets Professor Claudia Mitchell, whose specialty is human catastrophe. Ah, the theme. What follows is a lot of words, especially from the bus driver. A busy man, he says, We dream, gamble, seek, deserve a better fate than time or destiny through the agency of the unseen allows. If you want to enjoy this ramble, Mr. Wellman may be saying, Just get on the bus. The sandalwood box of the title is where Professor Mitchell stores her collection of catastrophes. Some will be revealed. In accordance with a prophecy of the unseen, 25,000 Serbian soldiers were massacred, clearing the way for Turkish mastery of the region for over half a millennium. The history of the human race is filled with disasters ruled by the dark unseen's id. Many of Mac Worldman's works are difficult to follow. The language can be a tropically effusive thicket of imagery and random thought bubbles. Not the sandalwood box. This one is a little mysterious and playfully edgy. Marcia has many questions, as we all do. The one that stood out for me was this one. Why is one person's disaster not a catastrophe for all? These two plays, like everything in this festival, offer an interesting glimpse into the Wellman world. He plays with the convention of theater. 
He gets angry at the darkness of the human race. He confuses and challenges his audience. For a taste of this unique and possibly acquired taste, these two eccentric offerings are sure to both confound and entertain. Put your fez on and really think about what the messenger is saying. We had different thoughts about meanings and definitely did not understand everything. Maybe that's why they call these catastrophes perfect. Now let's go back to Broadway and discuss the incredible slave play. Take your seat and stare at the mirrors on the stage facing the audience. An image of a large white plantation home is reflected from the front of the mezzanine. Slave Play is the name of Jeremy O. Harris's mind-blowing and audacious work which has moved to Broadway after a successful run off-Broadway last season. The play, the production, and the performances are phenomenal. This is theater for people who demand excellence, embrace discomfort, and revel in brilliant character writing. In order to experience this devastating satire, it is likely best to go in, like I did, with little knowledge and a vague assumption about what the titular word slave will mean. I have no intention of spoiling the extraordinary surprises which unfold, so let's simply ponder the opening scene. Kanisha enters with a broom and does some light sweeping. She can feel the music in her and begins dancing. She is a black slave stereotype of the era. Jim enters next, carrying a whip. He is the overseer on the plantation, not the master. He thinks it is devilish to move one's body like that, dancing like a raccoon in heat. He is a white southern stereotype. Will there be a whipping of this negress? The politics of sex, power, and race take center stage in slave play and never leave until the emotionally raw final scene. Mr. Harris is using American history, or a fantasized comedic version, to consider and illuminate interracial relationships. Can a white man and a black woman ever be free of the Kanisha and Jim dynamic? No matter how hard you laugh, which will happen very, very often, the edges here are bitingly sharp and thought-provoking. When the play ended, there were two camps. The majority seemed blown away by the masterful and thoroughly riotous dissection of our contentious racial issues and their long-lasting impact. The not tiny minority, notably older white couples, gave the impression that they desperately had to flee the theater as quickly as possible during the curtain call. If you like shows which are, so to speak, whitewashed trifles of easily digestible and inoffensive history, slave play is not for you. For everyone else, this experience is both mentally challenging and wildly entertaining. Mr. Harris has written eight roles, all of which are infused with unique personalities, beliefs, attitudes, and vulnerabilities. Robert O'Hara directed this masterpiece, which effectively lands every joke and dramatic sting. Mr. O'Hara's own play, Barbecue, similarly mined stereotyped racial profiles with comedy, tension, and surprises. 
The entire cast is stellar. Jokina Kalukango and Paul Alexander Nolan portray Kanisha and Jim. The elements of farce are spot on, while the gut-wrenching realness of true love and inbred wiring are painful to observe. There is a lot of observation in slave play. Clint Ramos's playfully simple set design works its magic throughout the production. The mirrors always face the audience. This is you. This is all of us. Annie McNamara's Mistress of the Plantation is nothing short of a tour de force. Her scene with Sullivan Jones is a comedic pairing for the ages. They will make you howl with laughter as you squirm in your seat. As Dustin, the not-really-white guy, James Cusati Moyer nails an exceptionally written monologue in a play overflowing with them. The entire cast is superb. Time will tell if Broadway audiences will embrace this remarkable work. When was the last time I saw a play this rich with such well-written characters across the board? Hard to say, but this one feels like a classic. Boundaries are pushed, themes hit hard, as they should. Sex, race, and power struggles are no laughing matter. Thanks to playwright Jeremy O'Harris, that statement is incorrect. Bold and adventurous theatergoers should grab a ticket to this one-of-a-kind fantasia. There is so much more to this play than even mentioned here. I'll stay on Broadway for the second stage theater company's presentation of Linda Vista, which originated out of Chicago and the Steppenwolf Theater Group. Two men are moving boxes into apartment 217 in the San Diego community of Linda Vista. They are longtime friends. Dick Wheeler is middle-aged and has been divorced for two years. He wallows in negativity. This reboot represents his new lease on life. Wheeler may not be a fully realized curmudgeon, but he's on his way. He is a supremely hilarious character in Tracy Letts's very funny dark comedy. Is Wheeler ready to take on a next phase in life? He says so. New friends are better than old people. Loyalty is not a trait he values as it leads to camping with Hitler. Our anti-hero is also a progressive thinker. Can he find a middle ground with Trump voters? He cannot, as they are too stupid and believe humans walked around with dinosaurs. The barbs fly frequently in many directions. He thoroughly rejects the restaurant industry's propensity for putting foam on a plate. Does someone in the kitchen have rabies? The humor is crotchety and cranky, like him. Regarding hippies, I'm afraid of joy killers eating chickpeas out of my skull. The zingers go on and on. Wheeler used to be a photographer for a Chicago newspaper, but agreed to move with his wife when children arrived. They relocated to be near her family. That long-ago life decision is one of the storm clouds hanging over his head. A lot of couples have offspring to distract them from their shattered dreams, he says. Now he works as a repairman in a camera shop. Linda Vista is both a look back on life's regrets as well as a commentary about living in today's world. How does a snarky, self-flagellating, doughy underachiever reconnect with the world?
his friends Paul and Margaret will set him up on a date. A terrific core of Vanderbrook plays Jules. She arrives as a free but guarded spirit. The double date? A karaoke bar. Ian Barford is outstanding as Wheeler. It is not possible to like him, but occasional glimpses of goodness shine through the sarcasm. He meets a young woman in a bar in an awkward and very funny display of creepiness in today's hashtag MeToo era. Chantelle Thuy is exceptional as Minnie, a wisecracking, vulnerable, strong, and misguided person. I expect she'll have similar life regrets when she reaches 50 years old. The last two characters in this situation comedy are Anita and Michael. Wheeler works with them at the small shop. These scenes showcase why the movement to eliminate inappropriate workplace environments took hold. Mr. Letts has written an enjoyable comedy with ample edginess. The plot, however, occasionally strains credibility through its two-hour and 40-minute running time. Now for some unfortunate news. As in every second stage production I have seen in their new Broadway venue, the Helen Hayes Theater, there is pre-show seat drama. The first five rows of this house are ridiculously crowded together. People were discussing their unhappiness with the ushers, and some moved to open seats at the back of the house. Neck pains should be expected if you sit in the front row. When will they finally take a row out? The bigger crime is Todd Rosenthal's set and Dexter Bullard's direction. Both were fine if you can actually see the whole play. More than a few times, characters were positioned so far stage left that we could not see them at all. This was not obstructed view seating. The ticket price was not different than the center orchestra. Here's an idea, directors. Try sitting in multiple locations during rehearsals to see if the blocking works for all the theater patrons. Nifty and considerate. Originally presented by the Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago, Linda Vista is a very entertaining comedy. As the ornery wheeler, Ian Barfer scores big in the laugh department, but he's sad and pathetic too. The character is large, and so is the performance. I highly recommend this play as long as your seat is better than mine. Next, the play, Nothing Gold Can Stay. Robert Frost wrote this poem in 1923. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. Chad Beckham's play of the same name similarly addresses decline. In this case, Eden is a small town in Maine. Grief makes its presence felt in a number of ways. Most tragically, this family will experience its own taste of America's opioid epidemic. Knowing someone whose family has experienced this firsthand should have made this material resonate emotionally for me. Clay is off to college, and his long-term girlfriend Jess is not. His mother takes her in while he is away at school. Jess is having difficulties at home with her new stepfather. 
we hear about a lurid underwear twirling incident. She manages to get a job in a chicken processing plant and things go south from there. They chat face to face on their computers to stay connected. You can sense their worlds are slipping apart. Clay has a tough of nails sister named Tanya who has a neglectful baby daddy. Jess's brother Jamie is an EMT in trading. He is demonstrating father skills and has joint custody of his daughter. Both of their unseen partners are described as assholes of one sort or another. Will the stated opposites Tanya and Jamie, who are clearly not opposites, attract? The play is written in short episodic scenes which felt clinical. Obviously, with this subject matter, there is going to be some serious tension. Jokes are placed bizarrely throughout. The audience laughs as intended, but any sort of dramatic momentum is derailed. Unseen girlfriend Amanda is as useless as a white crayon. Funny? Yes. Inconsequential to the plot and throws off the mood? Most definitely. The acting is strongest by the two supporting siblings, played by Peter Mark Kendall and Adrienne Rose Bengtson. There is heft and depth to their characters. They are people stuck with bad relationships and regrettable decisions. However, the complex individuals underneath the messy situations register loud and clear. We feel compassion and empathy towards them. The performances are confident, with strongly drawn portraits of living, breathing survivors. Every scene containing at least one of these two characters is the strongest parts of the play. The more challenging acting assignments are reserved for the underwritten central roles of Jess and Clay, played by Taylene Monahan and Michael Richardson. Their relationship is very basic. I was reminded of the old after-school television specials a very topical drama leading to a lesson to be learned. In this case, there will be healing before going back to playing Uno. For trivia buffs, this was Michael Richardson's off-Broadway debut. He is the son of Natasha Richardson and Liam Neeson. I suppose the play may be more concerned about the collateral damage caused in families forced to confront this epidemic. The two young people should probably be a little less bland to sell the all-consuming tension they create. Perhaps their blandness is the point being made here. This adversity could happen to anyone. Nothing Gold Can Stay was efficiently directed by Shelley Butler. Scenes and locations were clear within a one-room set. The story is a sad one, and much sadder than, quote, dropping an ice cream cone. Chad Beckham's play warns of the small-town dangers for a misguided, disheartened, and disillusioned young American generation. This place is like a spider's web. You stay long enough, you'll get stuck. For my next review, let's go to the wonderful theater company who presents very creative productions. And this one is called Victor. A gorgeously haunting ghost story is summoned up in the memoir Victor by Edgar Oliver. The ghosts are many. A man named Victor, the way of life for marginalized New Yorkers from decades past, memories of people loved and lost, regrets and joys in abundant proportions. 
Mr. Oliver is a member of Axis Theatre and has worked with director Randy Sharp before in the company's productions and his previous solo pieces. There is a relaxed, mysterious, and lyrical easiness to this performance, which is beautifully realized in the always atmospheric environs of Axis's Greenwich Village space. A friendship story both intimate and flamboyant, these two men first crossed paths when Victor was 39 and Edgar was 28. Their lives joined together around an East 10th Street rooming house. During the last 16 years he lived there, Mr. Oliver was the only resident. Fascinating observations witnessed of the denizens of the Lower East Side are recalled. They provide a glimpse back to a world of a seedier, and perhaps more romantically interesting, period in our city's colorful history. Edgar considered Victor a real man. He loved women, but was what they might say today, gay-friendly. Edgar worshipped this bald, barrel-chested, muscular man with his huge biceps. Victor reminded him of the cartoon character Popeye. Two cans of Popeye brand spinach, a present from Victor, are still in Edgar's possession. Victor loved movies and vodka. They enjoyed watching them together. They'd often drink or smoke pot on the stoop. This melancholy remembrance is filled with detailed imagery, both softly reflective and vividly prismatic. As an actor, Mr. Oliver is a riveting presence. He floats around the stage with an ethereal, fairy-like grace. His words are poetic and punctuated with reminiscences, both pensively reflective and revealingly personal. Mr. Oliver is eulogizing a friend who spent many years as a homeless man. Why didn't he stay with Victor one day until the film From Here to Eternity ended? He asks a lot of questions of himself and enriches his tale with a view only achievable in one's later stages in life. Edgar remembers Victor, the man he obviously idolized, very fondly. He wonders what he's meant to the various men he loved through the years. An effectively simple set by Chad Yarborough contains black boxes in different heights, suggesting an ominous and vague city outline. David Zeffrin's lighting design bathes Mr. Oliver in a moody glow, which references the black and white movies Victor and Edgar love to talk about. Paul Carbonara composed the perfect amount of melodious original music for three musicians, which nicely elevates this unique memoir. At the end of the show, linger in the lobby for a few minutes to view the memorabilia collected by Mr. Oliver. There are many writings Victor would drop in his mailbox through the years. The Popeye cans of spinach are on display. Is this a summation and consideration of regret in a life lived marginally on the outskirts of mainstream society? Or is this a life brimming with creative expression? an alternative approach to existence, survival, and the search for connection, love, and meaning? Victor is a wonderful theatrical experience no matter which interpretation captures your fancy. Artists who live during this period are and will be continuing to decline in number. Catch Edgar Oliver's imaginative retelling. Feel the spirit of a soon-to-be-forgotten slice of New York history which attracted and accommodated all sorts of quirky, colorful, and memorable citizens. Now I'd like to leave New York briefly and head out to Minneapolis 
where I took in two productions to see what the theater community was up to this fall. The first is Snow White. The wedding of Corey and Emily was the planned celebration for this trip. Earlier this year, when visiting the Minneapolis Institute of Art, I witnessed an excited group of children and adults energetically buzzing about. The Children's Theater Company performs in a space attached to this museum. I've heard their work was terrific. They won the Regional Theater Tony Award in 2003. A visit to see an exceptionally entertaining Snow White confirmed all of the hype. Entering a vast room, the seating arrangements clearly follow the troupe's mission. When picking up tickets, we worried about blocking the view for a child. The box office told us the show was designed with a four-year-old in mind. The risers were indeed high enough, and everyone seemed to have a great and full view. If only Broadway was equally thoughtful, Linda Vista. Mikhail Cockman's scenic design was large and menacing, but also warmly inviting, like the tail. Tree roots reached up to the ceiling. The trunk stretched along the stage. Limbs and leaves were painted on the floor and were also hung high from the ceiling. The lighting was atmospheric. Sunlight was peeking through the forest. One child remarked that she saw a rainbow on a tree trunk. Indeed, she did. Good eye. The story of Snow White is so well known thanks to Disney's first full-length feature cartoon in 1937. This version was much closer to the original Grimm story. The darker sections could be frightening to children, such as when the evil queen's huntsman is chasing poor Snow White through the forest. Ingeniously, Greg Banks' adaptation and direction created a beautiful balance between faithfulness to the story while clearly delineating a world of make-believe. Joy Dolo and Dean Holt begin the performance. As Snow White, Miss Dolo is ready to start. Mr. Holt is four, one of the seven dwarfs. Where are the other six? Not here yet. Oh well, they begin hoping for a late arrival of the rest of the cast. That never happens. This Snow White is a two-person play. Since the fourth wall is broken early, there is a lightness to the play acting. The darker elements are indeed a bit creepy, but the children are trusted to absorb a fictitious tale. Both performances are stellar. The actors switch roles as the story demands. When the dwarfs return home from the mine, Mr. Holt has to play all seven of them. I could return to see this production just to watch him turn a hat, change voices, and use body language to amusing effect. That one's grumpy. That one's dopey. Dean Holt is impressively hilarious and physically astonishing with his almost cartoon-like physicality. Joy Dolo was just as effective in her interpretations. Tie a simple skirt around her waist, and she is Snow White. Put a shawl over her shoulders, and she is the Evil Queen, asking the mirror who is the fairest one of all. This is an Evil Queen for the ages, and Miss Dolo seemed to bare her fangs with exquisite delight. Not a shred of goodness to be found in this wicked one. Both performers are ably supported by musician Victor Zupank and his memorable assortment of sound effects. As I was leaving the show, I was overjoyed by the subtle messaging in Greg Banks' production. 
the children could recreate this wonderful play with simple props and pieces of fabric lying around the house. The storytelling and make-believe came first. That is the magic of superb theater. The tale itself, not the often overproduced spectacle which can overwhelm and bury the heart of a show. Even more compelling, this production embraces a fairy tale world that is gender and race neutral. Snow White can be black and also play the prince. Four can not only morph into seven dwarfs, but can also be Snow White when the storytelling requires. That both performers marvelously play nearly every character, and none of this is ever confusing, is something for theater lovers to get a kick out of. Princeton University Press published a version of the first two editions of Grimm's original Folk and Fairy Tales in 2014. That book is still sitting in a pile at home. With all its darkness and interesting spins on life and friendship, Snow White has inspired me to finally crack open this collection of 156 stories. This Snow White is everything theater for young people should aspire to. Smart, entertaining, and supremely engaging. That is how live theater will thrive into the future. The children seemed enthralled. The adults were even luckier to have tagged along. Bravo! Next up, Ride the Cyclone. I missed an opportunity to see Ride the Cyclone when it appeared off-Broadway in 2016. As someone who once drove west and made an overnight detour to Cedar Point, the proclaimed roller coaster capital of the world, this material seemed right up my alley. Indeed, it was. I consider myself very fortunate to have waited to enjoy this riotously hilarious production at Minneapolis's Jungle Theater. Confidently and creatively written by Jacob Richmond and Brooke Maxwell, this charmingly spooky musical begins with a headless girl singing the mournful dream of life. She and five others have perished in a horrific carnival accident when the coaster's inversion goes awry. Karnak is the host of this show. For those who remember the fortune-telling machine Zoltar, this version is a dryly sarcastic and very funny caricature. Karnak informs the dead kids there will be an afterlife challenge. As a result, one winner will return to the living. A ghoulish cabaret emerges from that offbeat premise. Ride the Cyclone is filled with memorable character songs and laughs galore. Karnak doesn't exactly relish his job. To be told the time and place of your death with a mouthful of corn dog is the opposite of fun. One by one, the recently departed will make their case. More accurately, they sing about their personalities, dreams, worries, and assorted teenage angst. These kids are all members of a chorale group. You can guess the stereotypes on display. Ultra Peppy Ocean has a catchphrase. She boasts, democracy rocks! Her sidekick best friend is constant, thrice voted the nicest girl in homeroom. Her inner turmoils will be exposed. Noel is the gay kid who fantasizes about being a hooker with a heart of black charcoal in arguably the show's best number, Noel's Lament. Rounding out the gang of corpses is the adopted Ukrainian Misha, the sickly Ricky, and Jane Doe. 
Misha fantasies himself a rapper and pines for an internet love. Ricky had crutches and couldn't speak when living, but now has freedom in death. Jane Doe is the poor soul who lost her head and was never identified. She is hauntingly portrayed as a creepy mannequin. Ride the Cyclone is silly fun from start to finish. The show combines Halloween-style chills with musical comedy thrills. The joke-filled book is very funny, and the songs are varied and clever. This musical is a cabaret concert set in an old-school carnival, which has been unearthed from dusty memories of yesteryear. The period set design was by Chelsea M. Warren, and it was nicely lit by Marcus Dillard. Production values were high across the board, from the energetic direction by Sarah Rasmussen to the zany choreography by Jim Leichtendel. Each performer stands out in their spotlight moments and effectively provides ensemble support. The stage is often a whirl of activity with deftly conceived, quieter, moody moments. Projections designed by Kathy Maxwell conjure nostalgic memories while also adding significant visual appeal to the staging. Only one song came across as flat and overlong. The musical numbers were hugely engaging, deliciously irreverent, a little sweet and occasionally sour, and sometimes all of those at once. The goofy delights never cease, although the show contains an underlying melancholy. This deepens the material from Fun and Purgatory Kids Concert to more subtle and briefly rueful meditation on the gift of life. Jim Lickstedl, I hope I said that correctly, well, he was a fantastic Karnak, snarky and mechanical. The kids may be nerdy stereotypes, but this talented cast winningly made them come alive, even in death. I especially enjoyed Becca Hart's ethereally headless Jane Doe, Michael Hanna's deep-voiced Ukrainian lover and alcoholic-to-be Misha, and Josh Swick's memorable channeling of Marlena Dietrich and others as Noel. Everyone, however, made me laugh hard and frequently. Ride the Cyclone is a winner. This musical comedy is a lightly edgy amusement which has been sprinkled with the macabre and dipped in ridiculousness. Purchase your ticket, get on, and take a ride wherever you can find this little gem. Back to New York now, and the Roundabout Theater's off-Broadway production of a new musical, Scotland, PA. The road sign is for Exit 20. The point of interest is marked Closed. Scotland, PA is a nowhere town in the fall of 1975. A dead-end job at Duncan's Cafe won't provide access to the American dream. That doesn't mean Mac and Pat aren't capable of improving their station in life. They just need to take their ideas and put them into action. This new musical is based on a 2001 film, which was a modern adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. The show opens with three amusing stoners who substitute for the witches. The characters include Mac, Duncan, Pat, she's the Lady Macbeth of the story, Banco, and a detective named Peg Macduff. The setting is a hamburger joint. The political ambition in the Bard's play is replaced by old-fashioned capitalistic greed. Out, out, damn spot, with fries. Mac has innovative notions to improve the restaurant. 
Duncan is a caricature of the vision-impaired American businessman. He is all swagger and ego. He will not entertain any thoughts of chicken nuggets. Pat tells Mac that we deserve more than a rusty trailer with a space heater. Like many Americans, everybody's hungry. That's the title of one of the songs. The line which sums it all up, everything worth fighting for is even better when there's more. Underachievers making up for lost time, Mac and Pat put a plan together to improve their station in life. A wild ride through forests of sarcasm, fields of musical comedy, and graveyards of horror follow. 19-style 70s tunes accompany all of this wink-wink silliness, but there is an excessive quantity of power ballads. The show falls short of achieving the ambitions craved by its main characters. There is a lot to enjoy in Scotland, PA. Two musical numbers clearly stand out from the rest. They are both excellent character songs. A very funny J. Armstrong Johnson throws a kick-ass party as the burnt-out cook Banco. The restaurant owner's petulant son Malcolm introduces the instantly unforgettable new classic Why I Love Football. Those two moments are the high points in this score written by Adam Guan. That two supporting roles have the best songs is not necessarily the problem. The rest of the show is simply not at that same level. Michael Mitnick's book is cleverly cute and winningly repulsive, but many jokes fall flat. Ana Luiso's set design wittily takes every opportunity to playfully lambaste the McDonald's chain. The performances are fine, Everything does not add up to greatness, which is too bad because this one had a shot. Directed by Lonnie Price, this musical aspires to combine rock and roll with a commentary on the pitfalls of unchecked financial greed and self-promotion. Given the current headlines surrounding the extraordinary corruption and lawlessness of the Trump administration, a comedic rumination on a spiraling modern Macbeth seems timely. The show is much like the Democrats in Congress. The smart elements are there, but something critical is missing to run the football all the way to a touchdown. Jeb Brown and Taylor Iman Jones have warm chemistry as the updated Macbeth villains. True to form, the lady provides the catalyst from which there will be no inner peace. Both actors have big story arcs and many moments to shine. When Peg McDuff arrives... She sees herself as the avenging hero. Megan Lawrence is hysterical in the part. So why is Scotland PA just mildly entertaining? The concept is inspired. The book and music are not memorable enough to sustain an entire show. The denouement is devilishly disturbing, but there are too many lulls along the way. In summation, this musical is, from Macbeth, I quote, a tale full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. For those of you who listen to this podcast regularly, the next review is a dance piece, which was a follow-up to a festival I saw in June and reported on from the theater company Armitage Gone Dance. This one's titled, You Took a Part of Me. In June, I had the opportunity to see four works from a week-long festival of contemporary choreographers called Women Create. One of the pieces was a short selection from You Took a Part of Me by Carol Armitage. 
The full version was being performed at New York Live Arts. This dance is both visually and intellectually interesting as it embraces the world of Japanese no theater. And that's spelled N-O-H. Originating in the 14th century and still being performed today, no is often based on traditional literature. You Took a Part of Me references the 15th century play Nonomiya. This work was derived from an 11th century story by Murasaki Shikibu. She wrote The Tale of Genji, considered to be the world's first novel. In this particular segment, the ghost of one of Prince Genji's lovers returns to the world of the living. In order to present this dance, Miss Armitage uses a stage which is evocative of traditional no theater. The stage is square with a narrow bridge. Thin strips of light illuminate the stage border. Above, rather than a typical wooden roof structure, another series of lights suggests a ceiling. The symbolic reverence for the sanctity of this type of theater is respected and sets a melancholy, pensive, and analytical mood. Mugen-no is a play which features a ghost or spirit. Time is often depicted as nonlinear. Action can pass between two or more time frames from moment to moment, including flashbacks. In the original story, the ghost of Lady Rokujo indulges herself in her memory of parting from Genji at Nonomiya Shrine. She dances gracefully and sadly. The elegant Megumi Ida portrays the ghost who begins the performance attached to her double by interconnecting hair. Movement is slow and deliberate. They eventually separate. The ghost is then reconnected to her lover. A series of serious and playful connectivity follow. At one moment, she comfortably rests on his back. Later, the double arrives and dances with the lover while the ghost sits quietly thoughtful. Is she obsessing on her sadness? Her jealousy? Her gaze may signify a searching memory from the afterlife. I felt her weighing life's regrets in an obsessively psychological study of the suffering contained in her soul. The hallmarks of no drama are erotic entanglements, unresolved attachments, and a search for harmony. Ms. Armitage's choreography evokes all of these elements in precise, slow-moving connections and disconnections between the dancers. A minimalistic and very effective score by composer Reiku Yamada punctuates the movements, but still provides ample quiet reflection. A koken is a stage attendant in no theater who typically dresses in black and functions only to assist the performers. Everything feels very calculated, yet the storytelling is decidedly shadowy. Has her spirit come to terms with her memories? Three of us saw this piece, two of whom were Broadway dancers, and we enjoyed proffering our opinions afterward. Megumi Ida, Sierra French, and Christian Laverde Koenig are all wonderful dancers to watch. The development of character, especially through their facial expressions and eyes, greatly enhances the somberly reflective atmosphere created. This dance is measured in its pacing, a meditation for a woman revisiting love's complications with all of its tangles and knots. Carol Armitage decided to name her piece after a Bob Dylan song. Two lines beautifully sum up the feelings expressed through this dance. 
Maybe in the next life I'll be able to hear myself think. A no sentiment for sure. And perhaps this summation is most instructive. I try to get closer, but I'm still a million miles from you. Since it's October, I managed to find a Halloween piece. This one is called All Hallows' Eve. Halloween can take many forms when packaged for entertainment. There's the Elvira type with its campy clowning. Grab your tools, boys, and let's start banging. A spooky funhouse usually contains a few thrills and chills. Jumpy people like myself steer clear. Slasher films aim to terrify. This holiday can effectively play to many styles. All Hallows' Eve deliciously bills itself as a wild, eclectic horror musical with puppets. This quasi-immersive theater piece takes the audience through a series of rooms. The first stop is outside a home which has been seriously decked out for trick-or-treaters. Mom is dressed as a witch, and she is fully stoked for an excellent day. Preparations are nearing completion. Ominously named daughter Eve is testing the moving ghosts attached to the clothesline. She's wearing the classic sheet with eye holes and dryly remarks about being a Ralph Lauren ghost. Dad goes along with the program, but is really focusing on scoring Mars candy bars. Eve has a twin brother, Evan. While Mom clings to her traditions, the kids just want to get candy and toilet paper some houses. Mom quickly relents and their adventure begins. The twins sing a song which comments on this nostalgic opening. A line, Necco wafers, what are those? After an awkward transition into the next area, the puppet show begins in earnest. The kids start their toilet papering project. On a small stage, a chorus of cute, silly, and clever puppets come alive. They are manipulated by an ensemble completely covered in black. You know they are there, but the effect allows for K2Yaki's Treadway's wacky choreography. Evan sees a button that says, Press. Uh-oh. Follow me, says the mistress of the house. She is simply named Witch. Her persona is a little Elvira and a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race. She has the culinary yearnings of Dr. Frankenfurter with her assortment of puppet co-conspirators. The kids may be in trouble. What danger lurks while a storm rages? The kind showcased by a witch who fake plays a skeleton as a band accompanies her on a vibraphone. This musical then veers in many directions, from silly to macabre, never quite reaching its spine-tingling ambitions. The best section, by far, is an inspired show within a show. The witch plays her marionettes from high above. They dance and tell jokes. Her sidekick, Pumpkin Man, offers enthusiastic and dim-witted support. I laughed. The puppets are impressive, and so is the talent that created this show. Martin P. Robinson wrote and directed All Hallows' Eve. He is the man who built, designed, and performed Audrey II in the original Little Shop of Horrors. Best known for his 30 years of work on Sesame Street, he performed Telly Monster, Mr. Snuffleupagus, and others. Mr. Robinson was also the animatronic puppeteer for the character of Leonardo in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
It's not a surprise, therefore, that these puppets are very inventive and interestingly manipulated. A number of transformations are outstanding. Musical director Paul Rudolph composed the score for this musical. I detected a whiff of Rocky Horror in at least one song. The story wanders from jokey to menacing and back again. The laughs are generally not big enough. Will the kids ever escape this witch and her band of evildoers? No real tension is created, which undermines the spookier parts. The puppet variations, however, always draw your eye into the visuals, even as your brain checks out on the plot. Immersive theater is thriving in New York. All Hallows' Eve isn't quite ready for the big show yet. The puppets are truly a treat. The trick to making this creative endeavor soar are even funnier jokes, better tunes, sharper edges, a further developed plot, and most importantly, better management of the audience. A minor Halloween diversion today. Let's hope this matures into a nostalgic and eerie must-see tomorrow. Now for the first of two plays being presented by the Public Theater this month. The first is called The Michaels. For the past decade, Richard Nelson has written eight plays which take place in the small town of Rhinebeck, New York. The Michaels is my fourth visit to this community. He writes Americana in a most intimate way. Prototypical families filled with people who are thoughtful, decent, loving, and worried. The dramas are intimate in scale, admits the big wide world. Events which influence and shape our lives are present, but are not the sole focus. The four Apple family plays were a sold-out sensation at the public theater. That hopey changey thing took place during the 2010 midterm elections. Sweet and Sad was set at the 10th anniversary of 9-11. The next year, Sorry had the backdrop of the 2012 presidential election. The cycle wrapped up with regular singing in 2013 on the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination. I missed them, but they were significant enough phenomena that PBS filmed them. The Gabriels, election year in the life of one family, took place through the 2016 presidential campaign. This three-part drama started with a funeral in Hungary. The second play was, What Did You Expect? The final entry, Women of a Certain Age, opened on the night Donald Trump was declared the winner. The play did not include the final results, but the backdrop of an economically and morally fading America was omnipresent. Two splendid actors, Marianne Plunkett and J.O. Sanders, have appeared in all eight productions, including The Michaels. The characters may be different, but their recurring appearance binds together Mr. Nelson's thematic use of Rhinebeck. The town becomes a familiar terrain used to dissect and ponder this time in American history. There is a feeling of classic to this entire group of plays. The Michaels is subtitled Conversations During Difficult Times. In Rose's Kitchen on October 27, 2019, a group of women and one husband gather to recount past glories. Rose is a semi-retired modern dance choreographer. Irene Walker, one of her celebrated dancers, has come to visit. Once again, a meal will be prepared and cooked. Conversations will gently swing from yesteryear nostalgia to today's worries. 
Rose's daughter Lucy is a dancer who is practicing to perform a series of pieces from her mother's repertoire with her cousin May. The circle of life is ever-present. Nurturing is accompanied by stern warnings. Kate, a retired schoolteacher, is a new friend who is preparing dinner. Lucy was once her student. The small-town vibe hovers around these individuals. Mr. Nelson considers major life moments in a beautifully understated way. As a result, there is a richness to the dialogue which seems organic and very familiar. Escape is the slightly unspoken word. Rose has had a big career in the dance world of 1970s New York. She moved away. What is best for her daughter and niece? A romantic opportunity presents itself to another character. This riddle creates heartbreak. Should one be practical and responsible, no matter what the alternative choice? The Michaels is soft-spoken and, like the quiche being prepared, takes time coagulating into the depths of its character's emotions. Deliberately paced, the onion peels back during this little reunion. Pivotal, life-changing events are on the horizon for both the young and old. This entire cast is directed with effortless naturalism by Mr. Nelson. Each persona is a fully inhabited individual wading through life, but stopping at this moment to do so with each other. No more plot description is needed. Letting this play unfold is one of its great joys. Returning to Rhinebeck reminded me how little connectivity exists with my own family. There is a goodness in these people, which therefore makes you want to visit them. They help me traverse the highs and lows of my own American journey. Richard Nelson is a playwright who will always be worth your time. Staying at the public theater, I'd like to talk about one of the shows I was most anticipating this entire fall season. It's titled, For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough. Sometimes an impression leaves a lasting memory. When I began attending Broadway theater in the mid-1970s, the group school trips focused on the big musicals. During this period of consuming Shenandoah, Annie, and a chorus line, there were other marquees which drew my attention. One was for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. Another was Elizabeth Swatos's Runaways. With this revival, I have finally managed to experience these unique and intense theatrical pieces. The year before I started blogging, Runaways had a short summer Encores Off-Center revival. I loved the show and was surprised that it didn't seem dated. The subject was children who had run away from their homes and were living on city streets. Both pieces, for colored girls and runaways, were elevated to Broadway via Joseph Papp and the Public Theater. The institution that nurtured a chorus line also, and significantly, brought bold new voices to uptown audiences. Entosake Shange wrote her play based on personal experiences and observations. The Lady in Orange convinced myself that colored girls had no right to sorrow and I lived my life that way. All of the seven ladies are represented by a color. Yellow is still developing. Being a woman and being colored is a metaphysical dilemma I haven't conquered yet. This piece was written as a choreo poem 
a collection of individual poems with frequent music and dance. There is a true bonding of sisters. Brown wants to sing a black girl's song, which has been closed inside so long she doesn't hear the sound of her own voice. The sheer volume of gorgeous prose and deep introspection is staggering. This work was written for colored girls who have considered suicide but are moving to the ends of their own rainbows. Originally performed in bars and other downtown spaces, this play managed to hit the mainstream, at least in New York. The Broadway run was 742 performances and included a Tony nomination for Best Play. How rare a feat? This was only the second play written by an African-American woman to be produced on the aptly named Great White Way. It was produced 17 years after Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun. This trailblazing work lives up to its reputation. This collection of poetry covers many topics, from living in Harlem to rape and abortion. Men and relationships are dissected to release their pain. The Lady in Red's blistering monologue, A Night with Bo Willie Brown, recalls the arc of one young lady from 13 to 22. In the original production, Trezana Beverly won a supporting actress Tony for her rendition. Jamie Lawson's interpretation in this show stopped my breath. The singular finest moment in a tempest of excellence, pain, and partial healing belongs to the lady in green. This poem is called, Somebody Almost Walked Off With All of My Stuff. Her stuff is metaphysical. The title is repeated throughout this monologue. Each time Okwi Opakwasile, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, well, every time she lands that line, her eyes widen, boring through the listener. Her realization explodes as her percolating outrage is laid out raw. The writing and acting is riveting stuff. There is a lot of movement in For Colored Girls. The Lady in Orange tells us that we gotta dance to keep from crying. This section is named No More Love Poems Number One. Miss Sanjay is perhaps communicating her own personal chrysalis. She could not stand being sorry and colored at the same time. It's so redundant in the modern world. I found myself thinking For Colored Girls was both a psychological breakthrough for the author and a remarkably brave outreach to her sisters. The seven women listen to each other's stories and provide noticeable support and nods of recognition. One says that she is finally being real and no longer symmetrical and impervious to pain. Fans of lyrical language and expressive emotions have plenty to savor in this groundbreaking work of art. I happened to see the performance of this play on the one-year anniversary of Mrs. Shange's death. At the curtain call, there was a pause of silence in her honor, a fitting tribute in the theater where her work transitioned from beloved to famous, after all these years, I am thrilled to have finally encountered this long overdue revival. It reminds me why the public theater was and is vital to our theatrical community. It implores us to listen to voices which are not our own. And, most importantly, For Colored Girls shows how one person's life can inspire and help change the world. At this point in this podcast, you may be saying to yourself, that's a lot of theater for one month. Well, I'm at my final one now for the month, a Voyage Theater presentation of The Hope 
hypothesis. Is playwright Kat Miller in possession of an oversized blender? For her play, The Hope Hypothesis, she tosses in Alice in Wonderland, a Kafkaesque tale, absurdist comedy, a spy thriller, soap opera histrionics, and a deep state government mystery altogether. She turns the dial to frappe, because that's the most fun setting, outpours a surprisingly refreshing and very delicious treat, which successfully manages to be equally dark and light. There were two inspirations for this story, a New York Times article chronicling comprehensive bureaucracy in the Islamic State. The second was the experience of a friend who was almost deported despite being married to an American. Amina is the Alice of this play. Down into the rabbit hole of America's immigration system, she will fall. Whether or not she finds a Mad Hatter is debatable, but the Mock Turtle and Tweedledum certainly make an appearance. Amina arrives at an American government facility. She approaches a teller. He asks for her identification, including a birth certificate. She doesn't have one. He, therefore, is unable to help her. Get one and come back another day. She then, oddly, pulls out a birth certificate. The ISIS country flag shocks the teller. Amina has aroused suspicion and badly fumbles her explanation. The teller pushes the panic button. Whoosh! Down the hole she goes. Amina is confronted by two FBI agents. The lead questioner has little regard for due process. The other is adult. Amina's emotionally fragile boyfriend, Brendan, an excellent Greg O'Rourke, he comes searching for her. The teller and his supervisor are also questioned. The pot is stirred. Paranoia is stoked. The climate is fear and uncertainty. The plot evolves cleverly and convincingly, always making sure to have time for amusing asides. The teller doesn't appreciate the term HR. He doesn't like to be thought of as a resource. His 22 and a half months in this job is going to be his stepping stone to the presidency of the American Federation of Government Employees. An underachieving nincompoop, he thrives by throwing others under the bus. You forfeit due process when you align yourself with an enemy agent, he proclaims. Wesley Zurich is slinky and hilarious playing this delusional nobody. Laughter is in abundance in this production. Ms. Miller has directed her own play. The care and attention to setting the right tone is critical for success. Her characters have to play the absurdity straight as an arrow in order to deliver memorable throwaway lines like, There was a problem with pills. That one comes out of nowhere and elicits a huge guffaw. The actors effectively embrace their characters, but each of them leave the necessary room for realism. That allows for a healthy balance between comedic trifle and sly commentary on America's current climate. Scenes which unravel throughout this play can be ridiculously melodramatic like a silly soap opera. The intermingling of characters and locations provides ample opportunities for escalating lunacy. Like a good thriller, however, things frequently turn quite serious as well. When a person loses hope, they either destroy themselves or others, or both. That is the hypothesis of the title. Miss Miller's use of sarcasm could not be a more perfect fit for our times. 
We are in the land of quid pro quo and border wall cages. Facts are just opinions. A little levity to shake us free of the oppressive feeling of hopelessness is most welcome. The action is set in three rooms of a governmental facility. An exceptional set design by Zoe Hurwitz beautifully transitions between teller window to interview room to employee break room. The scene changes are fast and creatively executed. Will Amina successfully navigate the dark forest that is the U.S. immigration system and find her escape back to normalcy? When Carol arrives to this particular tea party, the rule of law seems to guide next steps. This is Trump's America, however, the land where skin color defines good versus evil. Truth and hope are in short supply. What's the best part of this play? A good beginning, a great middle, and a satisfying conclusion. The hope hypothesis manages to take a current, very serious topic and turn it on its head for laughs. Audaciously commingling styles is what makes this production stand out. I left the theater impressed and happy. Then I turned on the news. Oh well, at least there was some hope and considerable entertainment to briefly distract me from the world at large. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. To wet your whistle for next month's episode, there's going to be a production by the new group of a musical version of Cyrano starring Peter Dinklage and three Broadway productions I'm already committed to. Mary Louise Parker in a play, The Sound Inside, the follow-up to All My Sons about LBJ, but this time in his second term in the play, The Great Society, and finally, an epic two-parter, The Inheritance. If you have any comments or suggestions, I'd love to hear them. Also, if you are looking for me to review a specific show, please send an email to Theater Reviews from My Seat at Comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews as they are published at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Thank you and happy theater going.